You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. During the era of European exploration and colonization, as the Colombian Exchange created a flow of crops, diseases, and beliefs between continents, new legends of giants came back from overseas. Early European settlers came to believe that some native inhabitants of the quote-unquote New World, that seemingly mythic and alien land across the globe, were themselves giants. But were these merely the exaggerations of explorers seeing for the first time a new people that impressed them? Just as in biblical times the Israelites saw the robust inhabitants of Canaan and feared them as giants, as I discussed in part one of this series? For example, it is said that Tuscaloosa, the chieftain of Mississippian tribes in the modern-day state of Alabama, was a great giant whose stature impressed conquistador Hernán de Soto. But how tall was he really? Apparently, he towered at about a foot and a half over all of de Soto's Spaniards. But this is no precise measurement. And it is a well-known fact that the average height of European colonizers was relatively low, at about five and a half feet, give or take some inches. So it sounds more like Tuscaloosa was just a tall man, well over six feet. And given that he was said to be the most impressive of his chiefdom, Unsurprising, since an imposing physical presence has helped many a man in many a culture rise to power, we can otherwise infer that the rest of his subjects were of rather more average height. Similarly, when John Smith explored and mapped the Chesapeake region in 1608, he reported a, quote, giant-like people, end quote, inhabiting the Susquehanna River's mouth. Specifically, he described, quote, the greatest of them, the calf of whose leg was three-quarters of a yard about, and all the rest of his limbs so answerable to that proportion." End quote. Now, this description seems rather more focused on the brawn of the tribe he ended up calling the Susquehannocks, with mention of their height curiously absent. And again, like the Israelite spies in Canaan, saying, hey, we may not want to mess with them, they're giants. John Smith gives this description on his maps as a warning to colonists, and we have no way of knowing how exaggerated it may be. We do know that over the next hundred years or so, 
these Susquehannocks had further contact with European settlers in Maryland and with the French during the Beaver Wars, and there is little further mention of them being giants. So was it hyperbole, or had Smith just seen one really big guy, but not preternaturally large? Even among the Native Americans themselves, there are legends of giants, and we see them engaging in the same kind of exaggeration of the other as being gigantic. Among the tribes of the Iroquois Confederacy, there was legend that the Erie tribe were a bunch of giant cannibals. But again, European contact with the Erie does not bear out such claims. It seems, rather, that the Iroquois Confederacy were just slandering their enemies, whom they would eventually destroy, along with all their allies. As we saw in part one, ancient folklore and poetry cannot be treated as credible evidence. And now we may categorize the reports of explorers in the same realm as unreliable oral traditions. What is needed, as I stated previously, is an osteological record one single preternaturally lengthy human femur to prove the existence of giants in the past. This is historical blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and this research has me wondering if I have to start debunking fairy tales like Jack and the Beanstalk. Thank you for joining me for No Bones About It, Part 2, Giants in the New World. Before we continue, I want to thank my newest patrons, Bob, Nikki, Christopher, Mr. Altius, Amber, Peter, Dana, Emily, and Roland. I appreciate all my patron support so much. Listeners who pledge on patreon.com slash historical blindness get an exclusive RSS link that will set up an ad-free feed of the show with teasers and exclusive episodes, usually at least one minisode a month but sometimes more. For example, during my series on the Kennedy assassination, I released four tie-in minisodes. And before this series, I released a prequel minisode that further included a piece of audio historical fiction on the same topic, The Cardiff Giant, which I'll mention again in this episode. And between parts one and two of this series, I released another exclusive minisode, further discussing giants in Greek and Norse mythology. Patron feeds also get episodes early, and their episodes are not interrupted by ads. Not even by this little Patreon pitch. So visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness and support the show. Or you can support the show by making a one-time donation at historicalblindness.com slash donate. Or at the PayPal link in the show notes. Or on Venmo at historical blindness. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. In 19th century America, claims of giant bones became part and parcel with the baseless claims about the ancient builders of the impressive tumuli, or earthen mounds, that are found across the United States. 
throughout the Great Lakes region and the Mississippi River Valley. These burial places fired the imaginations of white farmers and antiquarians alike, who propagated the racist myth that the builders of these mighty structures could not have been related to the Native American peoples they knew, so there must have been some lost race that had inhabited the New World before European settlement. This lost race of mound builders, unsurprisingly, was said by many to be a lost white race, and in the 1800s, to be a lost white race of giants, whose enormous bones were said to be found within these mounds by many a farmer and antiquarian turned grave despoiler. So what of these giant bones? Where are these bones that we may measure them and determine whether they may indeed belong to mastodon rather than man? The funny story, these bones were often said, rather conveniently, to have self-destructed shortly after discovery. One Harvey Nettleton, writing on the history of Conneaut Township in northwestern Ohio, claimed in 1841 that around 1800, a man named Aaron Wright had been digging up graves in the area, and the bones he discovered not only were gigantic, but also, quote, on exposure to the air soon crumbled to dust, end quote. In fact, 20 years prior to Nettleton's account of Wright's discovery, an antiquarian named Caleb Atwater, a major proponent of that lost mound builder race myth, had actually published a report of his findings in burial mounds near Conneaut, which specifically stated that he had, quote, found skeletons of people of small stature, end quote. But despite that, Nettleton's larger-than-life account proved more popular and long-lived. Specifically, one image seems to have struck a chord that a skull Wright had discovered was so large he had been able to place it over his own like a helmet. Nettleton's story about Wright was widely reprinted and reproduced and summarized by various historians until elements of it became a kind of meme. We see in further stories produced by other antiquarians and recorded by different historians the same claims about massive skulls fitting over the heads of those who find them, and of other giant bones that are witnessed upon excavation, but, alas, cannot be examined by experts because they had disintegrated as soon as they had entered local folklore. It may be impossible to tell if elements of this tale were invented out of whole cloth by Harvey Nettleton 40 years after the fact just to spice up his sketch, or if they were told by Aaron Wright and passed into legend and local oral tradition. A simple genealogical search turns up a real Aaron Wright, born in 1775, who lived in Ashtabula County, Ohio, and was buried in Conneaut Township. This was likely the same Aaron Wright who gave evidence against the authenticity of Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon in an affidavit collected by Philastus Hurlbut around 1833. It may be that this little-known individual who contributed somewhat to the skeptical view of early Mormon claims also made a hoax claim that has long outlived him and added greatly to the legacy of this false notion.
The same holds true for other supposedly large bones said to have been recovered from burial mounds throughout the 19th century. It proves difficult to ascertain whether they were hoaxes or mistaken identifications of mastodon bones, or perhaps a combination of the two. One antiquarian, T. Apollyon Cheney, who was known as Doc, even though he had not earned the honorific through formal education, claimed to have discovered more than one giant skeleton in a western New York mound that he excavated with a partner, a bona fide medical doctor, Frederick Larkin. As one of my principal sources, Brad Lockwood's On Giants, clarifies, Cheney's most widely cited work, Illustrations of the Ancient Monuments in Western New York, 1859, is actually widely misquoted since this work really only contains illustrations and no text. However, it is clear from later editions of his work and from the passages in other works that summarize his supposed findings that Cheney did indeed claim he had found giant skeletons in a mound, that in fact he staked his reputation and founded a career on the claim. At a mound on Casadaga Creek, near the town of Konewongo, he claims that he, quote, discovered nine human skeletons which had been buried in a sitting posture. The skeletons were so far decayed as to crumble upon exposure to the atmosphere, but were all of very large size, end quote. Here again, the meme of the self-destructing evidence is reproduced, but Cheney claims that one femur remained, whose measurement of 28 inches proved the stature of the man to whom it belonged. That's about 10 inches longer than the average adult male's femur. And if such a bone were genuine and determined by a paleontologist to belong to a human being, it would indeed constitute evidence that it was the remains of a tall person. You'll find some online claiming that a femur is about a quarter of one's height. So a 28-inch femur would make for a height of over 9 feet. However, from what I've been able to determine, forensic anthropology tells us such a calculation is too simple, and to calculate the likely height of a male by the length of a femur converted to centimeters, one must instead multiply by 2.32 and then add 65.53, which in the case of the 28-inch femur gives us a likely height of 7.5 feet. Unusually tall indeed, but no monster. The further problem, though, is that this 28-inch femur was never preserved for analysis. And more than that, after Doc Cheney's death, his excavating partner, Frederick Larkin, the only medical professional on the scene to examine these supposedly gigantic skeletons, ended up writing his own book, Ancient Man in America, in which he revealed Doc Cheney's claims to have been exaggerated. As Brad Lockwood reveals, Having tracked down a copy of this rare text, Larkin writes, referring to Cheney's claim about the giant skeletons at Casadaga, quote, that the mound builders were a trifle larger than the present type is very probable, but that they were giants eight and ten feet is all fabulous. I have seen many skeletons from mounds in different states, but have seen none that will much exceed the present people now living. The subject under consideration has enough of the marvelous about it to gratify almost any imagination without resorting to giants." End quote.
As we have discussed more than once, in the 19th century, newspapers regularly ran stories of dubious origins that made improbable claims, hoping that sensational content would increase their circulation. For more on this, see my episode on the prolific newspaper hoaxer Joseph Mulhattan, or my episode Unfit to Print, A History of Bad News. Anyone today who points to 19th century newspaper reports about the discovery of giants as ironclad evidence of its truth should rightly be laughed at and mocked until they delete their accounts. Only rarely in the 19th century might a newspaper follow up on such a report. For example, in 1883, after printing a report about the discovery of a nine-foot skeleton in a gravel pit, the Indianapolis Journal afterward published the report of a local physician who investigated and refuted the claim, saying they were more like the remains of a five-foot, eight-inch man, calling the incident, quote, a giant fraud and an imposition on the credulity of the people, end quote. The problem is, such follow-up reports were rare. 19th century newspapers in many states published story upon story of giant skeletons without ever bothering to follow them up with the reports of experts who had determined them to be frauds. It became so common that Mark Twain actually decided to pen his own hoax, getting a spurious tale of a petrified giant published in a Virginia City, Nevada newspaper. With the telltale detail that the mummified giant had his thumb pressed to the side of his nose and his fingers spread, a well-known gesture showing contempt or derision, as if the giant were taunting the reader, saying, Nana Nana Boo Boo, stick your head in doo doo. In this atmosphere of rampant giant hoaxes, it is no surprise that the greatest of them all, the Cardiff Giant hoax, about which I spoke in detail and which I dramatized in fiction in my recent patron-exclusive episode, was so credulously received by the public. Mark Twain found this hoax, and especially the fact that P.T. Barnum created a fraudulent version of this fraud, quite hilarious, inspiring him to write a short story about the Cardiff Giant's ghost haunting the wrong remains. The fact that these widespread hoaxes about giants were publicized so avidly by newspapers, but their debunking was not, and the fact that Doc Cheney's claims about giant bones in burial mounds became so widely read, while his more educated partner's denial of those claims was mostly lost to history, is just clear evidence of the old saying, quote, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still lacing up its boots, end quote. Ironically, that quotation is typically misattributed to Mark Twain, when really it is a common corruption of an older quote by Jonathan Swift. So it seems fake news in newspapers then begets fake news on the internet today. These tall tales about giants having been discovered in burial mounds in America may have taken a hiatus of several decades, but with the advent of the internet, they have seen a resurgence. If you spend much time searching for giants online, you'll find a bevy of paranormal and conspiracy blogs claiming that a race of red-haired cannibalistic giants 
was spoken about in the lore of various Native American tribes. One story has it that the Paiutes trapped this race of red-haired giants in a cave, where they suffocated them with smoke. The evidence is the fact that a cave was discovered by guano miners in western Nevada, and there were indeed many artifacts and remains of the native tribe that had lived within, and the hair of some, having been preserved, looked reddish. The problem is, as Brian Dunning has pointed out in an episode of Skeptoid on the topic, none of the remains recovered were actually of an unusual size, nor did the artifacts appear made for the use of larger people. And the redness of their hair was just the loss of pigmentation in hair that was formerly dark. Moreover, the actual Paiute legends do not appear to include red hair or gigantism. As usual, Though a genuine archaeological find is cited, the find did not actually support the claims made online. And other stories don't even rely on real finds. For example, Steve Quayle, a self-proclaimed giantologist, promoted to his website's readers a claim made on a random blog, perhaps as satire, that mummified giants had been discovered in Iowa by a farmer named Marvin Rainwater on his land near Kossuth Center. According to the story, Rainwater happened upon a stone tomb while digging, and inside he discovered the mummified remains of seven figures, each ten feet tall and with long red hair. The find was apparently even verified by archaeologists from Georg von Podebrad College in the nearby town of Zor. What's even wilder is that this report was supposed to have been made recently, as it spoke about materials being held at the State Historical Society awaiting DNA testing. However, when someone actually contacted the Historical Society, they discovered not only that such a find had never been reported, but also that Kossuth Center and Zor are both ghost towns and no college named after the 15th century bohemian king Georg von Podebrad had ever existed. Moreover, the farmer that the story says discovered the tomb, Marvin Rainwater, appears to have been named after a country western singer from the 1950s. The internet abounds with blog posts that to this day repeat this story. If you're lucky, they may include a disclaimer that it may be a false story urging readers to, quote, please research it out and judge for yourself, end quote. Now for a brief intermission. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, 
ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death, to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller, to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. I'm Peter Laws, the host of the hit podcast Frightful, which offers very scary true stories. But as I research that show, I keep finding other true tales that aren't so terrifying and yet are fascinating and often deeply moving. That's why I launched a second podcast called Our Curious Past, telling forgotten incidents from history told in immersive audio with music, sound effects, and on-location recording. For example, you can join me on location in an underground nuclear bunker in England as I learned how Britain prepared for the potential of war in the 1980s. I loved recording on location in Transylvania to uncover the history of this beautiful and spooky land beyond the forest. And I was particularly touched by the big response to my episode on the Nazi massacre of urhador Suglin, an entire French village that was invaded by the Nazis in 1944. To be honest, it was sometimes hard to narrate that without breaking into tears. So why not join me, Peter Laws, by searching our curious past in podcast apps? Because, you know, sometimes it's the unique moments from another person's yesterday that helps us understand ourselves today. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, back to the show. Another strange fake news story regarding giants appeared in 2016. This one connects to the biblical story of a giant with extra toes and fingers from Gath, Goliath's stomping ground, which I spoke about in part one. And it also incorporated the popular red hair trope of these recent giant hoaxes. The story, which originated from a dubious interview with a supposed military contractor, on the YouTube channel of a fringe conspiracist who produces a lot of content on the topic of giants. Already it doesn't have a lot of credibility. The interview subject, called only Mr. K, 
described an encounter between an American Special Forces unit and a 13-foot-tall giant wielding a sword. The giant was described as having red hair, of course, and extra toes, a bonus, and also more than one set of teeth, a common detail from old 19th-century giant skull discovery stories which archaeologist Andy White has proven was actually just a common 19th-century phrasing used to describe nice teeth, meaning a skull had two intact rows of teeth, top and bottom. Essentially, this hoax purposely incorporated elements from other hoaxes and from old fake news reports and from the Bible in order to bolster its claims. Snopes reported a denial of the incident from the Department of Defense, but that isn't going to do much to convince conspiracy nuts. Hoaxes like these are designed to be nearly impossible to disprove, since any denials are simply proof of the cover-up. Typically, fake giant news on the internet arrives in the form of an image of uncertain origin, shared and gone viral online, purporting to show a person crouched over some ridiculously massive skeleton or skull with no actual information to fact-check and just the simple claim that the discovery of giants has been covered up. Snopes and National Geographic have debunked such images as manipulated photos and even tracked down the origin to a Photoshop contest called Archaeological Anomalies, which challenged participants to fake strange pseudo-archaeological discoveries. Yet despite being revealed as fraudulent images, they continue to be spread, along with the claim that the scientific community is hiding the discovery of these giants. One extremely popular story is of giant skeletons with horns having been discovered in Sayre, Pennsylvania. And this one too is typically accompanied by a dubious image of a horned human skull. Even as recently as March this year, fake news memes circulated Facebook about this archaeological discovery in the 1880s, stating that besides the bony projections above the eyebrows of skulls recovered at the site, the skeletons themselves were of unusual height, averaging seven feet. The image concludes with the claim that Quote, the bones were sent to the American Investigation Museum in Philadelphia, where they were stolen, never to be seen again. End quote. In fact, there was no such institution as the American Investigation Museum, but there was indeed an excavation in Sayre, which took place in 1916 rather than the 1880s, as the Facebook posts claim. Conducted by the so-called Dean of American Archaeology, Warren King Moorhead, as well as Pennsylvania historian George Donahue and Allenson Skinner, archaeologist, ethnographer, and curator of the Museum of the American Indian, or the American Indian Museum, which may be the origin of the false American Investigating Museum. This excavation was the culmination of an expedition to find the relics and remains of the Susquehannock tribe that Captain John Smith had long ago suggested were giants so there may have already been some expectation that the remains uncovered might be those of giants. 
The New York Times and a variety of other newspapers reported on the find, specifically claiming that the remains of 68 men were found, averaging seven feet, quote, while many were much taller, end quote, and with them were buried artifacts of unusual size to match their stature. The column further describes their notorious, quote, protuberances of bone, end quote. On first blush, this would appear well-documented, but we have seen that we should not trust old newspaper articles and must look further for subsequent corrections. Indeed, only two weeks after the first news report about gigantic horned skeletons spread far and wide, the archaeologists themselves set their records straight in a lengthier feature article in the Times. In it, they make no mention of horned skulls, and state more specifically that they estimated the height of the skeletons at about 6 feet 6 inches, certainly tall enough to appear imposing to a European of average height, making first contact with the tribe. In another newspaper column that has been uncovered, Allenson Skinner is quoted as setting the record straight on July 14, 1916. He states that they had excavated 57 skeletons rather than 68, and that they appeared to be, quote, perfectly normal individuals with the usual relics, end quote. He further explains the origins of the horned skull as the result of a reporter misunderstanding or being misled about or perhaps purposely misrepresenting what was actually found, quote, a deposit of deer antlers, end quote, laid over the bones, quote, hence, I suppose, the skull with horns on it, end quote. In the Times feature article, they further describe other artifacts placed atop the bones. Quote, Over the head of one of the skeletons was a bear's jaw, indicating the bearskin headdress, end quote, which the man presumably wore in life. One wonders that this did not start a further rumor that this had been a fearsome race of men with two sets of jaws. Beyond the claim about horns, which is rather unique among such stories, the claims of gigantism among the skeletons excavated at Serre are pretty tame. A height of seven feet is not unheard of, though it may have been unusual for that to be the average among more than 50 people in a group. However, the archaeologists themselves corrected that to more like six and a half feet, which of course is even less difficult to believe. But it must be pointed out that determining the actual height of any of these persons in life would have been exceedingly difficult. As mentioned above, modern forensic anthropologists have gotten it down to a science, able to determine the likely height of a man or woman based entirely on the length of a femur. But in the infancy of the science, skeletons were often measured as they lay, or if found in a sitting or curled position, manually laid out to be measured, a process that would not yield an accurate result. The reason for this is that once the flesh and cartilage of vertebrate remains have decomposed entirely, skeletons become more spread out and scattered than they would be when the bones are tightly attached with tendon and ligament and encased within the body's musculature. This process is called disarticulation, and the effects of bone dispersion during disarticulation was not the subject of much scientific study until the 1970s. 
Indeed, the fact that skeletons dug out of burial mounds in the Americas were often reported to be unusually tall could be entirely explained by the fact that the farmers and antiquarians measuring them did not adequately understand the spreading of disarticulated bones. Even among the experts digging up the Susquehannock graves at Sayre, Pennsylvania, all were archaeologists and ethnographers, not anatomists or experts in fossilized remains, and therefore might not even be expected to know how best to measure the remains they disinterred. Moreover, their description of the graves they excavated seems to indicate that assembling a single skeleton would not have been a simple task. In the New York Times feature, they explained that, quote, in some cases the bones had been buried long after death, when the flesh had disappeared, and in these instances the skull was usually deposited in the grave, and the long bones, fingers and ribs, heaped beside or over it. In some of the graves, a number of skeletons were found heaped together, end quote. Just how they reassembled and measured remains deposited in such communal graves is a pressing question, as are the calculations they may have used if they reached their height estimations based on the measurements of long bones. So the horned giants of Sayre, Pennsylvania, appears to have been a fake news story from a bygone era, recycled as a fake news internet meme today that continues to convince Facebook antis that preternatural skeletons have been discovered in Native American burial grounds. Further investigation into the image that always accompanies the post of a seemingly human skull with horns and a kind of wreath around it unsurprisingly reveals that it is not related to the Sayre, Pennsylvania excavation at all. The paranormal podcast Astonishing Legends did some admirable investigation into this image in their series on giants, the tall ones, particularly in part two, and determined that the skull is supposedly held by an online museum of supernatural history called Cernatium but they claim it is of normal human size and originated in France as a ceremonial object for cult worship of the horned god of Wiccan belief. The fact that this website has more than one photo of the skull, the image typically spread with the Sayre excavation story, and another, an image that I have been unable to find on any other website using reverse image searches, tends to support their claim that it is in their possession. However, as Astonishing Legends rightly pointed out, Cernatium appears to just be a website with no physical location to visit and view exhibitions. Moreover, the Internet Archive shows their website has been active for about 10 years since 2012, and searches on Google Books and the Ingram Viewer turn up no publications mentioning the museum which tends to cast doubt on their claim of having acquired the skull in 1952. However, using reverse image search and the Wayback Machine, I was able to track down the earliest surviving posting of this image to an old stumble-upon post in 2006 that mentions Cernatium and its claim that the skull came from France in the first half of the 20th century. However, on this post, 
which appears to be one of the first times the image was shared on the internet as far as I can determine. The poster links to a mysticism messaging board page at thothweb.com that is no longer working and is not archived in the Wayback Machine. The poster states that the skull's whereabouts were, at the time, unknown, contradicting the museum's claim. All that remains would be for an expert in photo manipulation to examine the image for signs of falsification. But even without such analysis, I think it is fair to conclude that this artifact, if it even exists, is a fake. If the person or persons running Cernatium want the public to believe their claims that they possess this object, have examined it, and have determined that, quote, the horns are genuinely part of the skull, end quote, they need to make the object available for scientific examination and public scrutiny. Regardless, even according to them, it is not the skull of a giant. Believers in such giant hoaxes, though, fail to be convinced by the point that such bones do not appear to exist, for none are today exhibited publicly or have been surrendered for scientific examination. Instead of this logical evidence that such bones do not exist, conspiracists take it as evidence that the bones have been hidden away and covered up. We see some insinuation of this in the text on the viral horned skull image, and it was there all the way back in 2006 on the obscure stumble-upon posting of the image I managed to find. The notion that the scientific community's refusal to acknowledge the existence of giants was tantamount to a cover-up is not exactly new. Even during the Cardiff giant hoax, critics of the statue passed off as a petrified giant were dismissed as obfuscators attempting to make the public doubt the truth of the Bible. But today, this conspiracy theory has gelled into a specific claim found on many websites and in numerous conspiracist books that the Smithsonian Institution is in particular responsible, taking giant bones and then purposely losing them so that they can never be examined again. These conspiracists even see NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, as part of the plot. This admirable law, passed in 1990, made it illegal to dig up burial mounds and required the return of items to culturally affiliated Native American tribes. Well-known scholar and skeptical writer Jason Colavito has written the most extensively on the absurdity of this claim and has even traced it to its recent origins. Having done the research, Colavito makes a strong case that no claims of a Smithsonian cover-up ever existed before fringe researcher David Childress began to make them in the 1990s. Childress is not much of a reliable researcher, as he is known for making a lot of baseless claims about lost civilizations, UFOs, and Sasquatch, many of which rely on conspiracy speculation. Childress seems to have started the idea of quote-unquote Smithsonian Gate in 1993 in defense of his racist idea about a lost white race of mound builders. And the entire idea, ludicrously, may have been inspired by the iconic scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, cited by Childress as an analogy in which 
the crate containing the Ark of the Covenant is hidden away in a massive warehouse. As Colavito points out, though, it is strange to think that these conspiracists believe the Smithsonian is some monolithic organization that controls the entire narrative of physical anthropology in the world. Such a conspiracy would need to be global, including every museum and research university on the planet. We know that such a conspiracy just defies simple logic. Furthermore, he points out that NAGPRA is only enforced on federal land, so any extant giant skeletons out there on private or state land would not be subject to this supposed cover-up. Yet we still find no big bones to support these claims. Lastly, though since the 1860s the Smithsonian has been on board with the Cuvier explanation of massive bones as belonging to extinct megafauna, as discussed in Part 1, it has been pointed out that in the late 19th century, the Smithsonian was still known to publish the work of antiquarians and archaeologists who claimed to have measured skeletons between 7 and 8 feet uncovered in mound explorations. Though these heights are not superhuman and could still be explained by the spreading of disarticulated bones improperly measured, the reports seem to prove beyond doubt that back when such claims were commonly made, the Smithsonian was just as likely to amplify them as to silence them. To conclude this series, perhaps it is time to take a wider and simpler view of the phenomenon, taking into account some relevant findings of modern science. If the claims about giants were accurate, it would mean that mankind has greatly reduced in size over the millennia of our existence. This is the concept of the degeneracy of humanity that lies behind all these tall tales. But modern science tells us that we are not shrinking over time, but rather growing. The average height of Europeans in the 17th and 18th centuries was in the mid-five-foot range, and today we creep closer to a six-foot average. There are many reasons for a growth or reduction in average height among populations, though, and it tends to be dependent upon local conditions, making any calculation of worldwide averages misleading. Think about the shorter Europeans arriving in America and encountering the taller Native Americans that they thought to be giants simply because the natives might have had a half a foot or a foot's greater height. Scholars who study average height across the ages argue that the height we reach depends on health trends related to climate and the availability of food. Considering this, it may be no surprise that Europeans were of shorter stock than the Native Americans they encountered. Science tells us that childhood nutrition has a lot to do with eventual height. A welcoming climate and plenty of food signals to the hypothalamus that living conditions are optimal and thus the body should grow as quickly as possible in order to develop sexually and procreate. This further explains why heights have continued to grow on average in modern times, as nutrition and medicine have improved. However, rather than a steady growth over time, studies show cycles of height fluctuation. In the Middle Ages, it appears mankind was taller, but then heights began to fall before rising again centuries later. 
fossil records of archaic man and subspecies like Neanderthals tend to show that we started out shorter, around 5 foot, 5 foot 2, not as towering monstrosities or as diminutive little gnomes. And all the data we've gathered shows that our fluctuations in height have remained within a certain range, between about 5 and 6 feet, where average height tends to plateau. Of course, there are exceptions, outliers, typically related to physical conditions like those I've already discussed. But all signs point to the existence of giants as nothing more than fantasies that have always loomed large in our collective imaginations. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Special thanks go out to my partner patrons, Diane, Robert, Joe E., Devlin, Jessica, Fred, Robin, Mateo, Seth the Writing Spook, Emily, Katie, Elizabeth, Terry, Isabella, Rebecca, Don, Eunice, Juliet, Antonios, Jonathan, Joshua, and Katie M. As supporters of this program, I consider you giants among humanity. Some music on this episode is copyright Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel and from Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or on PayPal. Find those links in the show notes. Until next time, remember the words of not Mark Twain, but rather Jonathan Swift, who in full wrote, quote, As the vilest writer has his readers, so the greatest liar has his believers. And it often happens that if a lie be believed only for an hour, it has done its work, and there is no farther occasion for it. Falsehood flies, and the truth comes limping after it so that when men come to be undeceived, it is too late, the jest is over, and the tale has had its effect." End quote. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.